Today on Growth Culture, how do you strategically, sustainably grow a long-standing company through broad business model change? I'm your host, Adam Connor, and that's the broad question I explore with today's guest, Lisa Pope. She's EVP and head of America's sales at Epicor, which is a tech company in rarefied air having been founded 50 years ago. Today, we chat about their transition from on-prem to SaaS, how to properly incentivize teams pursuing non-quota metrics, and touch on the importance of the CRO seat at the M&A table. This is Lisa Pope. Lisa, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you, Adam. It's such a pleasure to have you here and to learn a little bit about uh, your story, specifically through a couple of very quotable phrases <laughs> that, I, that I know that you're a fan of, but I'm going to get to that in just a little bit. Uh, very first thing off the top, quickly for people who don't live and breathe this every day, what is Epicor? So Epicor uh, basically sells into essential businesses that make, move, and basically sell things. So if you think about uh, the supply chain, say from an Ace Hardware store backwards, all the products that are uh, represented there are pretty much distributed and many of them made by our software. Uh, so definitely focused on supply chain, manufacturing, distribution, and retail. Uh, and we're about a billion dollar uh, software company that focuses on everything from the point of sale all the way through the back end accounting, shop floor, et cetera. I did ask that question a little bit tongue in cheek because guys, this organization is huge. Thousands of employees does a massive amount of business. And it's because of that, that I'd like to center some of my questions today, uh, just around how to keep that growth going, how to keep it sustainable, especially when a company is as long standing uh, as Epicor and speaking broadly to your experience about companies that are just long standing in general. I understand that it involves quite a bit of active uh, leader involvement um, everywhere that the business operates. And so I'd like to break the questions, if I could, into two things, really. One, from the aspect of customers that you already have and how you grow them sustainably. And then, of course, get to the cutting edge of everything, which is that net new fresh powder that every business is always trying to go after. But I'll hold that second, because to set the scene for it, uh, as I understand it, there are a number of stories to tell. And the first is about how Epicor's business, which was historically on-premise, you know, in 2005 or six, I think, I read several articles indicating that very few people even knew what SAS was or what the acronym stood for. Uh, that migration, of course, has happened over the last 15, 16 years. Uh, you've seen that happen. And I'd love to know what that journey was like for Epicor, because you oversaw that. Is that correct? Yes, and you're right. It was uh, it was definitely a crazy journey, and obviously we're still we're still in the midst of that. When you look at our vast customer base, uh, but I do think you brought up a great point just about sort of sustainable growth, and and obviously Epicor's been in business 50 years, so unlike a startup uh, that sort of has a cool new market and the coolest newest product, the ability for I think any sales leader to drive that sustainable growth year over year five years, 10 years and longer is really the challenge of a CRO and anybody in a leadership role. You know, similar situation if you have a company who's highly acquisitive and they're getting a lot of their growth through just acquiring businesses. Um, when you are focused on sort of an organic growth strategy, 
I really do believe you have to have multiple pillars that you're focused on in terms of how to drive that. And there has to be both short-term wins that are quick uh, so that you get those successes. And then obviously longer term, more strategic initiatives. And, and obviously we can explore that a little bit more. So for me, that's the number one um, job that I believe I have. It's to build a sustainable growth plan and deliver on it, not be one year, hey, quick wins and then move on. Um, and you mentioned SaaS. And I, you know, for us, obviously that was a very easy area for us to look at. Most of our customers were either on-premise or we were running their systems for them in some kind of subscription model. But uh, as the products evolved and we made a decision to invest and bring our products, upgrade those products, and also develop software as a service solutions, we knew we had the opportunity to obviously go back into our base and convince those customers now to move to our SaaS offering. And I think the number one thing that people forget is that SaaS is really a different business model, right? We're no longer selling the customer software and they're calling in when they need some help. In effect, we are running their business system for them. Um, and because we are involved in sort of mission critical ERP, this is pretty serious stuff, right? If a manufacturing company goes down, they're not building products, right? If you take down order entry, you're not selling products. And if you're, you know, take down your accounting systems, you're not closing the quarter. So these are not sort of point solutions or add-on solutions. These are mission critical, running the business, responsible for our customers' revenue. So number one, I think, you know, it's a different business model. And I think it's one of the reasons why it's become so attractive is most of our customers have a full-time job staying competitive in their market space. Uh, they don't need to continue to try to recruit and hire, you know, IT talent and continue to run their systems. And obviously, since many of them were already Epicor customers um, and we took very good care of them, they were actually interested in staying with us. So obviously, if they're thinking about switching to a SaaS model, it's also a time if they're not happy, where they may consider leaving you and looking at other alternatives. So I think one thing we had going for us is a very um, happy customer base. And we made a decision to say, all right, let's get these customers to, to move forward with our new SaaS offering. So I had a question about that just because that's obviously the dream, right? You have these customers who are like, yeah, sure, we'd be happy to switch. We love the work that you've been doing. We trust you. And as such, this transition to SaaS is something that we'll do with you. How did that translate to the folks at Epicor who then had to either pitch that or learn a kind of a new business model language? Did you have to bring in new people for that? Was there just a, a playbook that you wrote? I mean, how did that work? Yeah, and that I think was the big debate. You know, there were thoughts that said, hey, go hire a whole new separate sales force and have them take this piece of the business. That was not my thought. You know, my sense is this is not a, um, a limited opportunity. This is the future of the company and our sales talent. Uh, and I really do believe we have one of the, the best sales industry specific salespeople uh, and talent in the industry. I didn't want to give that up, right? That industry expertise and their ability to walk into a customer and know that particular vertical cold was extremely important. So I made a conscious decision to take my existing team 
And yes, obviously start with some additional training for them so they could understand what was different. Uh, In our case, we made the decision to go with Microsoft Azure. So understanding what that technology meant, what that infrastructure looked like. But I also made a decision that it would be important for them to have additional resources. So I did bring on a special team of sort of SaaS experts. They were non-quota carrying talent. So I put them in our customer engagement team, also known as pre-sales. And basically, it sort of carried the America's number. But their specialty and their expertise was to be able to go in with that sales rep and sort of, I'll use the analogy, but teach them to fish, right? So not take over the presentation over time, but to literally, you know, create the value presentations, help and train the salespeople, and then go on the first few meetings with them, be able to talk to the CIO about security concerns, be able to talk to... Um, IT just around um, backup and recovery and disaster recovery and failover and how Azure worked and then any other questions that they would have. And then over time, we were obviously a number of years into that transition now, all of our salespeople have sold SaaS opportunities now. And so there isn't, we don't, we, we don't have that concern anymore about not having a SaaS focused sales rep. But that's a really good example of where I made that conscious decision. I invested in those resources. I had the ability to to make that call. You know, in some companies, having sort of overlay of any kind is sort of frowned upon. Uh, And to me, this jump-started really our SaaS business. And then, as I said, I was able to retain all these incredible sales reps that have, you know, 20-plus years experience calling on that industry, which is really impossible to replace. Well, of course, those relationships are golden just as much as the knowledge ends up being. I do want to come back to that non-quota thing a little bit later in that fresh powder world. But first, let me ask you this, because as that transition occurred, of course, there were probably some people who nailed it immediately and, and some people who had a little bit of a longer tail in terms of getting fluent with the new language. So I'd just be curious how you made sure that the best practices were permeating the org at a time at which an entire transition was critical. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I do think it's it was multiple pieces of the plan. So number one was obviously training and education. I'm I'm a big believer in sales enablement. I feel like in a lot of companies it's sort of a last priority. So for me, that was, you know, first and foremost was to ensure that we brought in training and that people felt comfortable with it. We also did go through a certification phase. So sales reps had to sort of make the SaaS pitch to us. They got certified on that. We did a lot of that training in front of their peers. So they presented in front of their peers. That always adds a little bit of competitive nature to it, which I find uh, sales teams love. And then thirdly, I'm a big believer in metrics and compensation. Metrics to track things for people that are in programmatic roles. So in this case, uh, we basically did have a SaaS migration center of excellence We set metrics by vertical and by team on how many conversions we wanted to do, what size of conversions, you know, and obviously we had revenue targets associated with those as well. And then on the sales team side, you know, we still offer a choice to our customers. It's one of the things that we feel is definitely a competitive advantage for us. So not every customer has to choose to go software as a service. But what we did do is drive the incentive plan since we did feel it was a little bit harder 
to sell SaaS in the beginning um, as customers were getting more used to the idea of sort of giving up control. And so we definitely did put incentive plans in, uh, especially in the past two years, that sort of made it more beneficial for a sales rep to position a SaaS offering versus on-premise, but never to the point that we make the wrong decision, right? Because I think ultimately there are customers for whatever reason that um, that may not suit, you know, a, a true SaaS environment. And I want to make sure that we don't make the mistake of making that uh, wrong decision. Of course, you have to elegantly guide the language and, uh, well, incentivize people in the right way, especially when it's such a high priority and one that you don't want to uh, sort of clumsily trip through. But I, I will get back to that, the incentive question in just a moment, because the people who were best at this, you know, you carried through their best practices and eventually you came to this place where SaaS was the leading edge. So let's transition to net new business opportunity, which is the promised land for any leader seeking to grow their business in a big, big, big way. I want to start with, well, a quote that you gave me or a quote that I know that you like, which is make sure you nail it before you scale it. And I get that. Make sure you test things. And I understand that you have a sort of a yearly personal goal for this, but I'd be curious to know a few examples from your leadership tenure in which you test new things out, new strategic initiatives before you roll them out broadly. How do you do it? Is that too big of a question? Well, I want to know anyway. <laughs> well, I think whether it's net new or customer based, the concept of trying new things out, right, are that's part of a, a sales leader's mantra, right? It's uh, it goes back to what I said before. I think any sales leader can step into a job year one and find some low hanging fruit and some quick wins, right? And then year two, you know, potentially do the same. It it really starts to be year three plus where. Now all those uh, quick wins and low-hanging fruit are built into your run rate. So now you've got to continue to deliver that plus still deliver that double-digit growth. So yeah, I focus every year on trying to find three to four really strategic growth initiatives that we're going to use to sort of challenge our, our sales teams to think differently. And again, this can be applied also on the customer base. In fact, um, the very first nail it before I scale it program for me was on the customer side of the business where I didn't think we were being sort of strategic enough in terms of going back into the base and revisiting with the C-levels in that account, you know, three to four years after they purchased the software and were implemented. And so for me, um, most of my strategic initiatives I put under my customer engagement team. So they're part of my business plan. But that's one of the reasons why I don't use the word pre-sales. I think it's a horrible word because if I have people that know the industry and know the solutions, then they're going to be involved in the life cycle of that customer. So yes, they may do the discovery and demo when we initially close that client. But if we do it properly, five years later, it's the same um, customer engagement person that's coming back into that account, meeting with the C-level again finding out how they're running the software, using the software, what could we be doing differently, sharing best practices with them, and then creating sort of a multi-year expansion plan from there. So I think the nail it from the scale it idea is to really put a program in a safe place, right? You can't go hire quota carrying people the first year of a program and say, hey, I'm going to throw a quota at you, go develop strategic accounts or you know, go create a customer value program where we're going to eventually drive $35 million a year out of. 
You have to sort of identify key uh, thought leaders that you bring into the organization. And in many cases, I found that a lot of that talent was inside our company already. It was just a matter of sort of finding it and freeing it. And then in our case, what we do is uh, we do set metric goals. Again, I'm big on measurement. So these aren't uh, the same as a revenue goal. It might be, hey, in year one, we're going to do 40 of these strategic workshops. This is the C-level we want to have involved. This is the outcome we want from that. This is the results from the customer's perspective, right? When we survey them that we're looking for and then measure that team on those successes. And then once you get success in that, you know, smaller sort of safe environment, um, you know, we were prepared to very quickly ramp this up. So for me, a nail it is not a pilot, like, are we going to do it or are we not? It's really a phase one with the right team in a, you know, working really directly under my daily supervision so that, you know, all the roadblocks are sort of removed and anything they need, I can sort of make happen. And then very quickly, when we start to see success saying, okay, now let's take this to the broader organization. And then very similar approach where, you know, we set metrics to start and then start to sort of drive the behavior. But I think that nail it before you scale it, as I said, is just it's really just making sure that I think sometimes people wait to do things because things seem too big. Or my favorite is, well, we'll do that next fiscal year or in the next year's operating plan. Maybe we can do that. I'm big on starting initiatives mid-year in this model. And then by the time we get to you know Q3, we're not thinking about whether we're doing it. We're already started. And then we're actually starting to see the results you know, at the start of the fiscal year. Right. And I mean, as somebody who started their career in tech sales and anybody who is in the trenches in sales right now hears this, when you hear you're talking to somebody and they say, hey, maybe next fiscal year, what do you think that means? That means that you're going to have to try all again and then you might hear that answer in perpetuity. So I am a big fan also of just hitting the ground running and trying something. And evaluating things on non-quota metrics in that sense, well, makes a lot of sense. So with that, I'll ask, to what extent does incentivizing people change when, as opposed to something which is org-wide and a massive decision like we're going to SaaS from on-prem, that's happening across the board. When it comes to these, at first, smaller strategic initiatives where maybe the size of prize or opportunity in the short term is smaller, does the way you incentivize people change or do you just happen to have a team of go-getters who like doesn't matter what the goal is, they're just going to do it? There's a couple different ways you can do it. And I think it does depend on the program. You know, I've got two specialized sort of programs right now that are more focused on net new, one around really attacking private equity and treating uh, these large private equity companies that are making big inroads into our base and into our markets like a strategic account. Um, As you can imagine, a lot of those, you know, they don't show up in Salesforce and private equity buys companies and then you know, uh, sells them fairly quickly, you know, within a three-year period. So there's a lot of times you're not even really sure who owns who and how quickly, you know, are they going to divest that company. But we did find that private equity buys differently. They are definitely in a mode of, if I'm going to own a company for 36 to 48 months, I need to move fast. I'm not going to take a year to do an ERP evaluation. And we obviously have been owned by private equity. So we started to understand that. But In that case, for that program, I brought in a specialized individual that had some private equity expertise. 
he basically worked with three or four private equity companies, including our owner, to really find out, hey, what do you guys want? You know, standard contracts, standard pricing, one account team, you know, a non-sales focus to start so that it could be seen as more of a strategic business, three-year plan, and then obviously make it really simple when one of our companies wants to engage with you. We don't want partners involved and we don't want, you know, 15 different sales reps across, you know, the Americas. We want to deal with kind of a similar team. So um, in this case, for this individual, you know, one option is you can put them on um, the whole number, right? So you can say, hey, this is our goal this year. You make this. This is what you, you know, this is sort of how you're paid. You're paid a bonus on that. The second thing is obviously activity-based, and we've done that before in terms of progress around out of these top 20 private equity companies, how many can we actually get engaged and involved in, you know, standard contracts and things like that. But ultimately, as this progresses, then yes, you do want that person paid on the private equity opportunities that are closing. And again, not to take that away from a sales rep because their quota would be much larger because they're going to be doing it across you know, 20 huge private equity companies. But we've done that with another role on working with influencers and selection consultants, similar situation where I brought somebody in who knows that space is wired. She's developed programs for that, you know, specialized marketing events. And then every deal that happens that a selection consultant is involved in, she tends to know that selection consultant, help navigate thing with the rep, and then carries sort of a selection consultant quota, if you will, as well as activity. So there's a lot of different ways to structure it. But I think what I found over the long term is that if you're not willing to do that, then basically you end up with a revolving door of people that sort of come in and get frustrated because it does take you know a good 12 months to get a program up and running and going. And to my point earlier, you don't want your growth objective in one area, right? You want to always have sort of four different balls in the air that you're going to invest in where you're trying to get, you know, new business in. And those are just some examples that I've seen. But I'm a big believer in, you know, and and luckily, I'll talk a little bit more about the importance of um, a chief revenue officer or any VP of sales ensuring that they you know, I, I don't think I would take that job if I couldn't be on an executive committee, be part of the executive leadership team, because so many of the things that I do, I'm able to do and quickly get sort of cross-functional buy-in that this is the right thing to do, you know, versus somebody telling me I have to hit these sort of reps to metrics, you know, ratios that you hear about. Totally. I'm so glad you said it's exactly where I wanted to go. I have Two, I guess, like, again, broad umbrella questions. It's what we're doing here. It's okay. We're diversifying. This is These are sustainably growing questions as we go along. Basically about that seat and two things about it. One, how those strategic initiatives play out. How far up can you get a seat at the table when it comes to new opportunities, number one. And then the second, I'll ask about that revolving door metaphor is good all the way at the top of the chain and how that affects things. But I'm going to ask that last because it's more future looking. The first thing that I wanted to ask is this. As you just noted, you know, making sure that you have three or four balls in the air of strategic initiatives at any given time is great. But undoubtedly, you know, the word growth in some organizations is also synonymous with new acquisitions, new partnerships broadly, things like that. And this is actually a question I haven't asked on this show yet, but 
how as a, let's just say as a sales leader, could be a CRO, but whatever that contemporary role is, how do you make sure that you get a seat at the table when it comes to those broader efforts? Because you're going to be in that seat eventually, but I just find that it's not always the case that the CRO gets to sit in. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think there's two avenues. One is obviously if you're considering a role, make that be, you know, one of your criteria, right? So I'm happy to consider this role, you know, and, and again, at the CRO level or a VP of sales, but uh, I need a seat as part of the executive leadership team. And if sales is not part of that, that's to me a pretty big red flag. And I'll give you some examples in a minute of why I think that's so important when you start talking about growth. But you can't grow a company by just growing through your sales team. You know, if sales is growing, service needs to be growing, support needs to be growing. You know, there's an acquisition strategy. I tend to find if sales is not involved in an acquisition strategy, it leads to problems and I can give some advice. But in the event that you're not at the level yet where, you know, you have that seat at the table, maybe there's a global CRO and you're running Europe or the Americas. There are other ways that I think you can still get the access and, you know, the ability to get those growth initiatives on the table and discussed. I think, you know, clearly um, having really good rapport with your cross-functional exec. So the head of global services, the head of global support, certainly the head of the product side or R&D or whatever that, you know, particular organization is called is key because, automatically then it's like, you know, that ability for you to get things done. If I'm going to go off, for example, and decide uh, to go after private equity, but I'm not going to get finances support for, you know, reduced pricing and standard contracts and maybe other concessions up front, that makes it very hard for me to do the job. So I think the more you can sort of get that cross-functional enablement, I think that's really key. And then, um, you know, if you're not on the executive team, certainly there's usually an opportunity for you to present to that. And so I think any head of sales should make a conscious effort to get on the agenda. It doesn't have to be the board meeting agenda because usually an executive team will meet, you know, multiple times a year as well without it being a board meeting. But making sure that your growth initiatives are understood and supported And as I said, it's equally important to have both those quick wins so that your executive team's knowing the stuff you're doing will make an impact this fiscal year, as well as sort of those longer term ones that you're basically in that nail it stage now so that they're going to be delivering that revenue for you the next fiscal year. And that combination, I find, usually does work. And that leads to, well, really the ultimate question here, which It's also a new one for this show, but I I haven't felt really comfortable enough to ask it yet, which is, let's assume that you nail it in whatever initiative that we're talking about in this case, initiative X, whatever, and then you scale it and it works great. And you build this wonderful reputation for having grown a, a line of business or a new project or whatever that is. You mentioned earlier the risk of revolving doors just across any sales team. And I think that, of course, applies to the leaders as well. And while the CRO seat is not as short tenured as, let's say, the chief marketing officer seat or other seats in the C-suite, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on what the appropriate amount of time that like broad evaluation period is for any leader to be at a company and growing initiatives before they move on to their next effort. Because in a way, maybe that's their own personal strategic initiative as well. But it has a lot to do with team cohesion. And I'd be curious to get your thoughts on that as we close out. 
Yeah, I think it's a great uh, question because I think there is a mentality, you'll see this, and I look for this in terms of people I don't want to hire, but I call it sort of the grow and go, where you'll see sales leaders that do you know, under three years at a company will tout all their incredible growth statistics that they got in those three years and then move on and then, but do that consistently. So you'll see a lot of two year track records, right? To me, um, like I said, it's, I could walk into any company and I'm not saying this to brag, but I could walk, I feel into any company and just based on my experience now, assess things and find some low hanging fruit. It would be different at every company but there are things that they aren't doing today that they don't know about. And so, yes, I could deliver growth. Right. And so that's great. And then the second year, you know, you're, you're, you've got that built in and now you look for one or two other, you know, key initiatives and you've got a second year under you. So, and then at that point, you know, that growth is built in and unless you're doing, you know, more things to continue to move that needle, you start to struggle and then you leave. Right. So, you know, for me, for hiring, that's one of the things I look for is people that sort of break through that two-year mark. Now, there's another situation, which is a CRO or a VP of sales who's ready for their next role. And I've actually, I'm big on mentoring. I've actually encouraged people that have worked for me to go ahead and step out and take that next role because it wasn't available, you know, at the company they were at. And I think that's a different philosophy of saying, these are the things I've done. And now I am ready to go have the seat at the table. And frankly, that's one of the reasons I came to Epicor is because instead of just running sales and having a big number, I am on the executive team. I get to participate in the board meetings. And that was a big enough reason for me to leave. So I think, you know, it, it really does depend on the individual. But if you are one of the people that's kind of doing these two-year stints, you probably need to take a step back and really say, why is that? You know, are you really getting ahead by doing that? And is there, you know, is there an obvious break point where maybe a few of these companies you do need to continue to develop that skill because it's, it's hard to, you know, you're not going to last long if you have been doing sort of that two year job hopping. That's a great way to, to round out here just because listeners, you hear great sales leaders, revenue leaders, growth leaders on this show all the time. And they have illustrious tenures and it seems to be that they are always like several years long. It's not, what I also find is that it's a lot different starting out your sales journey. People will go two years here, two years there. And so it's really interesting to learn that at the other side, that's actually probably not where you want to be and also underpins that any growth journey is longer than a two-year stint. I've learned a ton here, Lisa. I really appreciate you telling me more about you know, how to grow sustainably, holistically, both in your current and in those net new opportunities. I look forward to learn a little bit more about what those strategic initiatives are for 22. Uh, maybe I'll close out with this one little tidbit. Do you do that personally too? you have any hobbies or new skills you try to pick up every year? What's on your mind? <laughs> Well, I'm uh, I'm a little bit of an adventurist, so um, I uh, begin to skydiving and actually have done that for uh, one of my sales kickoffs. Uh, myself and the head of international did sort of a, uh, a skydive as part of our theme and actually while we were really focused on the clouds, so it was sort of a, an interesting metaphor. Um, no, I think my next stint is to make enough money so um, I can go up on Blue Origin. I think that's uh, that's my next gig. Now that would be wonderful. <laughs> that would be uh, a ride befitting uh, the end of any growth journey. But 
I really appreciate you uh, basically laying out how we get there on the show today. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. You bet. Thanks, Adam. It was great to talk to you. Thanks for tuning in today. If you want to hear more conversations just like this one, head on over to wherever you get your podcasts and search growth culture. And hey, while you're there, leave us a rating and review to let us know how you liked this one. To learn more about Dedicated.ai and our other events, visit us at our website, same name there, or send us an email, jl at Dedicated.ai. We'd love to hear from you about what you'd love to hear from us. Until next time, I'm your host, Adam Connor, signing off.